0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sobgracechurch.ca. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Job chapter 2 as we continue our sermon series that we began a couple of weeks ago called When the Righteous Suffer. If you've ever had the unique experience of watching a movie in the Tong household, you'll know that it is quite a dynamic experience, Uh, not by choice. Uh, If Nina and I had our way, it would not be a dynamic experience, it would be quite a sedentary experience. Finally, the moment when mommy and daddy can uh, kick up our legs uh, and little legs stop running and little mouths stop talking and we can just kind of, you know, enjoy this film together. But that is not the case in the Tong household. In the Tong household, little boys are constantly running up and down the stairs or hiding in the bathroom or escaping to play a game. And it is not because they are bored. It is actually because they are scared. They're scared of all the bad things that are going to happen to the characters on the screen. And I'm not talking about, you know, really scary movies here. I'm talking about like Babe. You know Babe, you know like what's going to happen to the little pig? You know, is he going to is he going to be eaten and consumed for their Christmas dinner? They're they're scared of what's going to happen to the characters on screen. You know how these things start. They start with some minor loss or offense, and then it escalates into something something bigger and something more painful. And my, my boys, they just can't take it. They, they can't take the pain that's being experienced on the screen. And so what do they do? They, they run. They run away. Uh, they, they cover their ears. Uh, and sometimes they even shout at the top of their lungs so that they cannot hear what's going to happen next on the screen. And after a while, they might drift slowly back down to the basement and, uh, cautiously peek at the screen and see what's going on. But there are other times when I actually have to go and pursue them and I have to assure them and say, kids, the, the worst is over, uh, the, the bad things are done. It's going to get better now, okay? So you can come and, and see how it all works out. I wish I could say the same after the absolute horrors of Job chapter 1. Job's suffering, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, began with the loss of his wealth. This man who is described as the greatest of all the people of the East, he, he had vast possessions and property and servants. He, he lost it all in the span of one day. He went from, from wealth to welfare, from riches to rags, from having everything to owning nothing. And as the readers, we might have thought, well, that's a good place for the Lord to intervene and for the redemption story to begin to unfold. But it doesn't. Instead, it gets worse, as we saw again in Job chapter one, his 10 beautiful, godly, united, loving children, all seven sons and all three daughters tragically lose their lives as the house of the older brother collapses under the powerful wind of God. And they're all dead, not a single one left. And at this point, we also may be ready to cover our ears and shout at the top of our lungs and run out of the basement to escape this story. But we're thinking, well, surely this is when things start turning around. This is the moment when things start getting better. This must be when redemption begins and and God starts making everything right again. After all, hasn't Job passed the test? Satan predicted that Job would curse God to his face, but instead Job falls on his face and worships. Isn't isn't that enough? But as we flip the page to chapter two, it still does not get better. It gets worse. Life gets even worse for this poor and broken man, because that's what life can be like for us as well. We, we suffer and we lose and we cry to the point where we don't think we can take one more drop of pain, one more piece of bad news, one more crushing disappointment, but it comes anyways. We think, surely this is enough. Surely I have suffered enough. But in God's mysterious providence we have not. We find ourselves being crushed beyond the breaking point with no relief and precious little comfort. Well, that is what Job chapter 2 is all about. And that is why I have titled this sermon, Losing More After Losing It All. Losing More After Losing It All. We will divide this chapter into three points. First, Job's God. Second, Job's wife. And third, Job's friends. Now, chapter two begins with a scene that is nearly identical to what occurred in chapter one. We see again in verse one, God has convened another heavenly council, and Satan comes and presents himself before the Lord as well. The Lord asks again, from where have you come? And Satan's answer is just as dismissive as it was the first time. He doesn't talk about the mischief he's been causing. He doesn't reveal that he has been scheming against God's people. He doesn't reveal that he has carried out his intention to deprive Job of his possessions and of his children and what he did to fulfill those plans. Instead, he just says, well, I'm from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Again, his answer is vague. It is irreverent. It is dismissive. The Lord replies in verse three and he says, have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. That is exactly what the Lord said to Satan about Job in chapter one. But though they are the same words, this time around, they carry much greater significance. When, when God said this in chapter one, Job still had everything. He had all his wealth, He had all his health. He had his reputation. He had his children. He was still the greatest of all the people in the East. But here in chapter two, Job is a different man. Job is living through a very different reality. He is an afflicted man. He is a grieving man. He is a man who has been severely tempted to curse God to his face and to abandon the the God whom he worships. And yet the Lord confirms that Job is still blameless and upright. He still fears the Lord and turns away from evil. Now this is remarkable. This is remarkable, especially when we consider that Job did not process his loss with dignity. Okay, you remember how he he responded to the news that he had lost everything and then he lost all 10 of his children. He didn't just smile and say, well, I guess I'm going to see them again in heaven. No, he he tears his robe in in absolute anguish and he shaves his head to to let his physical appearance reflect how he felt inwardly. He laments the loss of what he had and what he loved, but still. The Lord says that he was blameless and upright, that he fears God and turns away from evil. The Lord is showing us that his people can grieve deeply and still trust deeply. They can tear their robes, shave their heads, fall on their faces and still be blameless and upright. And that's because there is a difference between godliness And stoicism, stoicism would say that emotions are a sign of weakness, that if you are going to persevere through a trial, it is about suppressing what you feel inwardly and thinking purely rationally. People who are full of faith are not also people who are full of pain. Well, that's something that Christians can come to believe. We think that someone who really trusts the Lord, who really believes God's promises, they won't weep or mourn or cry. We think that being blameless means that you will never lose your composure or that being upright means that you will never fall on your face, destitute and broken. Or we think that that fearing God means that you will never feel the fear of being alone when your loved one dies. But God looks upon his servant Job, utterly broken with pain. And he says, I have no one like him in all the earth. Then the Lord says something about Job he didn't say in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. What's happening here is that God is revealing that he knows Satan's true motivation here. Satan's motivation wasn't to test Job. His motivation was to destroy Job. His motivation was to wipe this godly man off the face of the earth so that there is one less man of integrity who fears God and turns away from evil in the world. Christopher Ashe writes, the Satan sets up the test with a logic that has its foundation in the glory of God. But what he actually wants is not to see Job tested, but to see Job destroyed. But God, as he considers Satan's motivation, what he is desiring to incite God to do, he will not allow it. He will not allow Satan to incite him to destroy his finest man, his faithful servant without reason. Yes, he will allow him to be tested. He will allow him to be tested beyond the breaking point, to be afflicted, to be crushed and to be stretched, but he will not allow him to be destroyed. Such is the sovereignty and the wisdom of God. God knows all and he rules over all. He cannot be deceived manipulated, tempted, or tricked to do anything that is evil or wrong. And even the evil that does happen in our lives is under his restrictions. That is what we see happen again in verses four to six. Verse four says, then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. Now, the meaning of this first phrase, skin for skin, is a little ambiguous, but it seems to mean that people are willing to give up the skins of others in order to save their own. And that appears to be why Satan says right after all that a man has, he will give for his life. He's, what he's really implying is that God hasn't truly tested Job yet. Because Job is ultimately only concerned about himself. Yeah, he can, he can lose things out there. But as long as he has his own life, life's still pretty good for him. Now, this is a cynical view of human nature that is no doubt twisted by Satan's own self-centered personality because Satan is all about himself. He could lose all his demons, his minions, and he'd still be good because he has himself. But when it comes to human nature, it is obviously not always true. Sometimes it may be true, but it's not always true. Parents, of course, know that they would rather give up their comfort than see their children suffer. Uh, They would be willing even to die so that their children may live. And spouses, of course, feel the same way. But regardless of whether it's true or not, Satan has put forward a theory of human nature that needs to be tested if Job's integrity and God's sufficiency are to be fully vindicated. And so Satan says in verse five, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Once again, God has allowed Satan to afflict Job not because job deserved it not because job needed it not not because job earned it but because god wants to show the world that job does not love god for god's gifts he loves god for himself so that even if job lost everything even if he his His limits are further stretched as his body and his bones are touched by the by the afflicting work of Satan. He would still worship the Lord because God is good and God is enough. Satan is released once again to afflict God's finest man. And this time, God only gives him one restriction. Only spare his life. Job's body may be in the hands of the devil, but not his life. And Satan can only operate within the boundaries that God has set. Now the scene shifts from heaven back to earth, which leads to our second point, Job's wife. In chapter one, you may have noticed that Satan's activity in Job's life is hidden behind the agency of human actors and natural causes. Satan is not mentioned as the one who stole Job's possessions, who killed Job's servants, who uh, collapsed the house on Job's children. It was the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and it was the fire of God and it was the wind. But here in verse seven, it is made absolutely clear that Satan is the one afflicting him. Verse seven says, "So." Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. These loathsome sores are literally evil boils. They were swollen areas of skin filled with pus. And they covered him from head to foot. Not not a single area of his body was free from this pain. Not a single patch of skin gave him relief from this unceasing agony. Job's pain is so severe that verse eight says, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This is the only thing that brought brought Job relief. He didn't have medicine to treat these loathsome sores perhaps because he couldn't afford it he didn't own a single penny not a single penny was attributed to his name or perhaps medicine just wasn't uh, developed to a point where he could treat this kind of sickness but he's got no medicine he's got no creams or bandages to slather on these gaping wounds all he had was a piece of broken pottery And he used that piece of broken pottery to cut himself, to scrape off the boils, to to make the boils leak out their pus so that he could get some relief, only to see new boils take their place. It is hard to imagine how Job must have felt. But verse 8 gives us an idea. It says that he... Sat in the ashes. He sat in the ashes. He he went to where people took their garbage and took their waste and burned it. He he went to the place that Jesus uh, used as an analogy for hell, Gehenna, the, the burning ash heap outside of the city. That's where he went. He went to the town dump. Because that's how he felt. He felt like garbage. He felt discarded, forgotten, unwanted. And it is there at the ash heap in Job's lowest moment where he is tempted by an unexpected source. Verse 9 says, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I've often said to my wife that if we are united, if we are together, if we are by each other's side, we can can handle anything. We can take on the world. We can weather the pain and the suffering of this life. But, But when we are not together, when we are not united, when we're not on the same page, we become fragile. We become weak and we become easily tempted. Well, that was the case for Job. Verse nine reveals that this, this woman who had vowed to spend the rest of her life with her husband, this woman who had vowed for better or for worse through sickness or health, through, you know, whether we are rich or whether we are poor, this, this woman who had stood by her husband as his spiritual helper now tells him to curse God and die. You cannot help but feel sorry for her. I mean, Job is not the only one who has suffered here. She she has suffered just as much, if not more. I mean, she has lost their family wealth. She has lost their family reputation. She has lost all 10 of her precious children. She's lost everything. And now in this moment of her deepest grief, she tempts Job to sin. Give up your integrity, Job. Stop pretending that God is good. Stop pretending that this life is worth living. Just curse God and put an end to it. The words of Satan have become the words of Job's wife. It was Satan who said that Job would curse God to his face. And now it is Job's wife telling him to do exactly that. Satan may have gone silent. In fact, he has no other words captured in this book. He's done. But he works through human agency, beginning with Job's wife and continuing through Job's friends to tempt him to curse God. There are times when our greatest temptations will come from where we least expect them. They can come not just through those who hate us, those who oppose us, those who are difficult for us to interact with. But they but can come through those who love us, who care for us, who, who want what's best for us. You just think about Sarah tempting Abraham with Hagar. Or think about Solomon's many wives tempting him to commit idolatry. Think of Peter. Peter, who said that he loved Jesus more than any other apostles, saying, Jesus, you will not die. This is is not going to happen to you. And Jesus having to take him aside and rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have the things of God in your mind, but the things of man. Temptations can come from those who are closest to us. But Job, he he responds in exemplary fashion yet again. He does not demonize his wife. He does not condemn his wife. He, He speaks gently with her. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Job doesn't call her a foolish woman. He says, you are speaking like one of the foolish women. These are not the kinds of things we say. These are the kinds of things that the foolish people say, those who don't fear God, who don't know his will, who don't bow to his authority. He creates separation between who he knows his wife to be, a woman of faith, a woman of wisdom who fears the Lord. He creates separation between that image of his wife and who she is presenting herself to be in this moment. You could say that Job was not a man who would judge his wife based on her worst moments. Job was not a man who would judge his wife based on her worst moments. As as harsh as her comment was and as strong as her temptation towards him to sin was, he was willing to overlook it and to remind her that these are not the kinds of things that they say. Instead, they are those who say, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job is calling his wife to trust in the sovereign goodness of God and to believe that the same God who is afflicting them now is the same God who had blessed them in the past. And if the Lord knew what he was doing when he was blessing them, then he knows what he is doing now as he is afflicting them. Verse 10 ends with, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Still, he's holding fast his integrity. Still, he is trusting God. Still, he is living in reverence, submission, and obedience, and trust in the Lord whom he worships. And let's not miss the theological point here. You know, Job hasn't just said that God is sovereign over the good that he has enjoyed. He has said repeatedly that God is sovereign over the evil that he has received. He is identifying God not only as the ultimate source and cause of his blessings, but as the ultimate source and cause of his suffering. And that was not sinful for Job to say. God doesn't say, hey, don't blame me. You know, this is, I'm not doing this. It's Satan. Don't, don't attribute to me what he has done to you. No, instead, God says, you are right, Job. You are right. It was I who ordained this evil for you. And you have not sinned by saying so. And so after all these temptations and trials And in the midst of this physical, bodily agony, Job recognizes God as the sovereign ruler of his joys and of his pains. And he remains blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Last point Job's friends. In verse 11, The book of Job introduces us to three of the main characters in this book. We're going to be hearing a lot of these three men from uh, chapter 4 to chapter 31. These three men and their conversation with Job take up 28 of the 42 chapters in this book. There is Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. These three men are genuine friends of Job, and they come with genuine, sincere intentions. They come to comfort him. In verse 11, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. The word comfort here is used in the Old Testament to refer to, to speech that changes the mind of the person being comforted. It's it's what you could call the providing of perspective or the assurance that everything's gonna be okay or the reminder of divine truths that that make sense of one's suffering. They came with a plan to, to comfort their friend by speaking to him. But verse 12 says this, and when they saw him from a distance, They did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. These three friends, they they did not even recognize their friends. So so deformed had his body become. So transformed had his countenance become. They, They didn't know that it was him. His skin was so infested with boils. His face was so distorted that they, they had to look carefully and say, is, is that him? They knew him as the greatest of all the people of the East. And yet here he was sitting in an ash heap, scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery. And so rather than comfort him, they they weep. They, they weep, not... With him, because it seems that Job is done weeping, his tear ducts have gone empty, not weeping with him, but for him. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And verse 13 says, And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. This reminds us uh, that there is a time and a place for everything. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three, you remember what that says? It talks about how for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. That includes a time to keep silence and a time to speak. There are times when Your loved one's suffering is so great that the best thing that you can do is just sit with them, hold them, and cry with them. We may wonder whether that makes a difference. After all, there there is nothing in the text that actually indicates that Job was comforted by his friends sitting with him, weeping with him. But that is all we can do in times of deepest suffering. C.S. Lewis actually wrote about this in, uh, in a book that he wrote called A Grief Observed. He wrote this book shortly after his beloved wife died from cancer. And he wrote this, I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether they'll say something about it or not. I hate if they do and if they don't. Listen, there's just very little comfort for a man in Job's position, regardless of whether we speak or whether we remain silent. Job's friends, they probably did the right thing here by not saying a word to him, at least at the beginning. But as the days and as the nights stretched on, it says seven days and seven nights, so also did their silence to the point where we might wonder, was it really, the right thing to do? For them to not say a single thing to their broken, destitute friend all those seven days and all those seven nights? Well, I believe that the answer to this question is found in what they do end up saying when they begin to open their mouths, starting in chapter four, where they finally take the time to tell Job what is really on their minds. And, and it is not good. It is not good. It is it is accusatory. It is condemning. It is, Job, you must have done something to deserve this. And and, and if you want your life to get better, if you want your life to look like ours, you, you better repent. You better turn up your hidden sins. That, that's what's in their minds. And that is at least part of the reason for why they don't say anything at all. They had nothing comforting to say. Again, Christopher Ashe writes, their silence may be not so much a silence of sympathy, although it may have begun as such, but a silence of bankruptcy. They say nothing because they have nothing to say that will bring him comfort. They had nothing to say. Because they did not understand. They didn't know what it was like. For life to get worse and worse and worse. They didn't know what it was like for Job to devote his life to worshiping God, to raising up his children in the fear of the Lord, to to commit his life to obeying God and honoring God in the integrity of his life, and yet to lose it all and then to lose even more. Only one man could know what that felt like. Only one man could know what it felt like to lose his family, to lose his community, to lose his reputation, to lose his friends. Like like Job, Jesus lost it all, and then he lost more. But unlike Job, God didn't say to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. No, God gave up his beloved son without condition, without restriction. He gave him up completely to the hands of evil men and to the evil will of the devil to crucify him on a cross and die. And, and on that cross, Jesus, he, he lost it all. He, he felt his life slowly dripping out of his pierced hands and feet, he felt his lungs strain under the exhaustion of the, the strangulation of the cross. And worst of all, he felt the agony of losing the blessed eternal fellowship that he had always enjoyed with his heavenly father. His pain was so great that, that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken Me And all he received from heaven was silence. Jesus lost more after losing it all. And it wasn't because Satan triumphed. It wasn't because the priests and the Pharisees had finally outwitted him. It was because God willed it. God willed it. And he willed it so that all who trust in Jesus could be saved. Jesus suffered and died in our place for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus lost it all so that we could gain it all. Eternal fellowship and joy in the presence of God. Jesus is a friend of sinners And Jesus is a friend of sufferers. He is a friend of sinners because he died for us, but he is also a friend of sufferers because he suffered with us. He understands what it's like. He knows what it is to lose more after losing it all. He sympathizes with you in your weakness. And he does not approach you with the silence of bankruptcy with the hidden thoughts of condemnation and accusation. He comes to you with a heart bursting with compassion, mercy, and love. He knows when to comfort you just with his presence. And he knows when to comfort you with the words of eternal life. And so whether you have suffered little or whether you have suffered much, whether you have walked with Jesus for decades or you're just beginning to learn what it means to trust him, whether life for you is full of feasting or you now dwell in the house of mourning, know that you can come to Jesus because Jesus, he he will not just sit with you and wail. Jesus will lift you up out of the ash heap and he will seat you in his presence at God's right hand in the place of honor honor and dignity and blessing. And he will restore everything that you have lost and suffered through the power of his resurrection. If you belong to Jesus, my friends, if, if you currently trust in Jesus, you, you call on the name of Jesus for salvation, and you worship him as your Lord, as the eternal Son of God, then your story doesn't have to get, and it won't get worse and worse. It won't get to the point where you are sitting in the dump without hope and without comfort. In, in Christ, your story will have a happy ending. Your story will end, not in the ash heap, but in the presence of God, beholding God's glory in the presence of God's people. And so I invite you, again, to come to Jesus, to bring him your suffering, and he will bring you to himself. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by the story of Job, who suffered beyond our comprehension. And yet we recognize that his suffering is but a a drop in the bucket of the ocean of suffering that Jesus experienced for us. We pray as we continue to go through this series that you would train us and equip us to suffer well, to suffer with faith, to suffer even with joy. Even as we are tearing our clothes, shaving our heads, wailing on the ash heap, to know that Christ will come to us and he will lift us up to himself and one day to eternal glory in your presence. We thank you, Father, for the precious gift of this book, for the integrity with which Job lived his life. And we pray for the gift of the same integrity for your name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.